most often questions that's asked of Christianity. The topic that we're tackling today, it's been referred to the Achilles heel of Christianity. Some time ago, George Barna, he polled adults and he said, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask? The top response was this, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And I can't think of anything more universal than the human experience of suffering because it is something that we have all gone through. No matter how minimal, no matter how great, no matter whether we're in it now, whether we've been in the past, we know that we're gonna go through it in the future, uh, we've been promised that we will have those times of pain and suffering in our life. The problem of evil is one of the hardest things to try to discuss. And this past week, um, I was talking to someone, and I said, hey, um, you know, we, we were just having a conversation. She said, well, what's the sermon going to be about this week? And I said, pain and suffering, and where is God when it hurts? And she goes, oh. And she just started to walk away. And I said, do you have anything for me on that one? And she goes, I got nothing. Well, God doesn't have nothing for us. So we're gonna dig in and we're gonna be all over the scriptures. We're gonna be in Genesis. We're gonna be in the New Testament seeing what Jesus has to say. And then the end of the sermon, we're gonna really dig in to the life of Job. So we're, as I said, kind of all over the place. But one of the things that we can know is that in a fallen world, we will have pain and suffering right now. And as we go through this, it begs the question, And I know you have probably asked this at one point or another in your life. If God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, then why is there pain and suffering? What have I done to deserve this kind of treatment? Why does God allow all of this to happen? And we wrestle with this question and and people walk away from Christianity and they walk away from the church because many times this subject is not broached. Many times this subject isn't brought up in church because we don't want to talk about pain. We don't want to talk about evil. We don't want to talk about Satan and the devil. We just want to keep it all nice and build us up and tell us how everything's going to be great in the end. I mean, we love those kind of messages. However, we have to realize what we are dealing with in this world. One writer referred to the problem of pain as the question mark that turns like a fish hook in the human heart. And the Bible does not run away from this question. We we read in in Psalm Psalm 10 verse 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble. Habakkuk 1:2 says, "O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear?" So what are the reasons for bad things? It's helpful to make the distinction between micro and macro suffering. We don't know most of the reasons why we suffer on a micro level, why this way, why now, why this long. But on a macro level, we see many different reasons, and it helps us find purpose in our problems. And I see four reasons why bad things happen. Number one, 
moral evil has been unleashed. We're going to go back to Genesis for just a few minutes. In order to understand this, we have to go back to Genesis, and we read this in verse 26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. You see, God created Adam and Eve in his image, and in that meaning, what he was saying was, I'm going to give Adam and Eve and all of mankind after Adam and Eve the ability to make rational choices. You see, sometimes we hear people say, well, why didn't God create a world that didn't have tragedy, that didn't have suffering? Why didn't he make it to where none of that existed? He did. He made the world perfect. However, it didn't last very long. Because we go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. He looked over all of creation, and he goes, it is very good. God did not create evil. Rather, he created the possibility for evil when he created human beings. And the reason that we understand that, and this is a hard thing for us to understand, but it is he gave us free will. We've been given the ability to make voluntary choices. Now, if you were raised in a strict home, you didn't have voluntary choices, did you? You were told what to eat, when to eat. You weren't getting up from the table until you did eat. You were told what time to go to bed, and if you didn't go to bed, um, you were getting a crack on the bottom. We're not allowed to crack anymore if I don't, if I, I don't think so. Um, it didn't matter how many times you asked for a drink of water, you weren't getting that drink of water because it was bedtime right now. And some of you are like, well, yeah, that was the same exact thing when we entered into the military. It was every single thing, just like I said. Okay, but we, as human beings, have been given the ability to make voluntary choices. You see, God gave Adam and Eve some moral parameters and clearly told them what they could and could not do. We go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, by choosing to defy and disobey God's standards, ever since that day, every single one of us have been born with the ability to make those same choices. And with the same rebellious bent for sin, we have given in. Vince Vitale writes, according to Christianity, what God values above all is relationships. But for relationship to be meaningful, it must be freely chosen. For relationship to be freely chosen, there must be the possibility of it being rejected. And wherever there is the possibility of rejecting relationship, there is also the possibility of pain and suffering. You may wonder, why doesn't God step in? Why doesn't he prevent people from doing bad things to others? Why doesn't he step in when diseases are unleashed? Why doesn't he nix them right away? Why does he allow all of these things to happen? He surely could have stopped it. We could agree, right? He could stop all bad things, all evil things from happening. Yet, 
He didn't want us to be robots. He gave us the ability to choose. Sometimes we suffer because of sinful choices we make. When sinful people make decisions, God allows them to play out. And sometimes those consequences result in those bad things that do happen. The second thing that we see here of why bad things happen is that the earth is now an environment of disease and death. Before Adam and Eve made their voluntary choice to rebel against God, the world was perfect as well. No earthquakes. How many of you felt last Sunday morning you thought it was the presence of God in here, but there was actually an earthquake that was felt by some people in Stafford. I don't think anybody actually felt it, but it was in North Carolina. It was like a 5.1. But yeah, it shook a little bit. But you know, before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no earthquakes. There was no hurricanes. There was no natural disasters. There were no plagues. There were no diseases. But when they sinned, creation suffered and was cursed as well. Genetic disorders and multiple diseases were unleashed to do their work of destruction. Pain and death became a part of the human experience. Listen to how God describes the consequences of their actions. Go to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. We read, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You see, their sin, Adam and Eve's sin, in personal guilt and shame, alienated them from God, others, and it brought disruption to nature. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, it describes the present state of our planet. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The entire globe is groaning under the pressures of God's judgment. This was all said in the moment that sin entered into the world. Then we go to number three. Here's the best one, and you all love to use this one. I love to use this one. The devil made me do it. Satan influences people to do evil Many bad things are the direct result of the first two things that we talked about, but also the devil. He has a destructive design. Satan is ultimately behind all of the hatred, the war, the oppression. He is behind the evil that is in the world. He inflames our passions. He prompts us to do and to make those bad choices. Jesus referred to the evil one. He referred to Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, whatever name you want to give him. He referred to him this way in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The fourth reason. The fourth reason will be difficult for some of you to swallow, but it's key to understanding adversity. Number four, God sovereignly weaves his way and his will through suffering. This is hard for many of us to fully understand. Listen, God is good even when bad things happen. But some of of God's reasons are beyond our capacity to understand. 
we don't fully understand why a five-year-old is shot and killed. We don't understand why a three-year-old has leukemia. We don't understand many things in this world. But God has the greater plan in mind. And we have to remember that very thing. God puts it this way in Isaiah 55 verse 9. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When good parents decide that they have to move and they decide that they must pick up their family and move from from one city to another, from one school district to another, when they decide that they have to move completely across the, 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 the state or the country, maybe even to another country, their children think that they're the most evil parents in the world. And children think, well, you must hate me to pick me up and to move me from what I know. But most of the time, the problem is that the children have a limited understanding of what is truly happening. Their, pr- their parents are processing a lot of factors They're thinking about the children. They're thinking about the whole family. They're thinking about what is best for the entire family as a whole. And that's the same exact thing with God. He has something greater in mind, something greater in store for us, but we can only see so much. We don't see the forest for the trees that stand directly in front of us. It's time for each of us to surrender to the the sovereignty of God. Because all things are under his rule, they're under his reign, they're under his power. Nothing happens without his direction, without his direct permission. And we're going to talk about that as we we get into looking at Job here in just a few minutes. I want you to hold on to Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God is working in all things to bring about his glory for the ultimate good of everyone that is around. For his purposes. We have a really hard time with that. A couple of years ago, uh, I was talking with uh, Billy and, and, and Tana and uh, they were sharing with me about Tana's diagnosis. And if you haven't heard her story, um, she went in uh, to the chiropractor and um, she went to get some adjustments and it didn't seem to help all that much. So she went back in and then after going back in, it made it even worse that she ended up into the hospital. And as she went into the hospital, she actually found out that she had a tumor and that tumor was actually holding her entire spinal column in place. Now, I may get some of the details a little bit fuzzy. It's been a few years. But um, they had to go in and they had to give her radiation. They couldn't just go in and cut it out or it would have all fallen. But they had to do certain things and they had to put rods in place. And it was a very uh, aggressive form of cancer. And and, uh, I I remember the story that she told of um, their... um, minister in, in Stillwater. His, his name is Tom, and his wife was diagnosed with, with cancer as well. And, and uh, Tom's wife said the same exact thing that, that Tana said 
um, when asked, why me? The reason was really, why not me? That's hard. But when God is in control, and, and as you can tell, it's been several years and Tana's still with us and she, amen, she had the surgery. Yes, she... It, it is a true blessing because I remember she had went in and, and they, they, they told the story and, you know, they went in and um, the doctor said, why are you standing? Why aren't you in a wheelchair? How can you move your, your hands and your feet and, and, and all of this? That shouldn't be happening right now. And she shouldn't be sitting with us here today, but she went into a chiropractor, and because she went into a chiropractor, God took that situation that seemed like it was really, really bad, and he turned it into something really, really good because all of that came through. And that's what we always have to remember. And I want to go back to James. Last week we talked about James chapter 5, and we talked about prayers, and we talked about him healing and how God works. Here's the thing. Sometimes he just reaches out as the great physician, and he touches us, and he heals us. Other times, not only can he do it where he just touches us, and he heals us, and it's gone, he uses the medication, and he uses things that happen within the world. And we go, why do these bad things happen well, he has a greater purpose than we don't always understand. So when you're going through those hard times, it could be to help others around you see the glory of God. So be willing to say, why not me? So what are the practical benefits of, of hard times? The Bible speaks of at least four good things that happen when bad things happen. Number one, hard times can stretch us. Hard times can stretch us. If we always get what we want and we just cruise through life with no problems, we'll just stay the same character. We'll be in the same image that we've always been. James 1, uh, 2 through 4 puts it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You need those times of pressure in your life because it's in those times of pressure, it's in those times of pain that you really come to know God better and you come out on the better side because of it. So hard times can stretch us. Number two, hard times can equip us. Hard times can equip us. Another reason we go through difficult times is so God can comfort us. And once we're comforted, we get to comfort those that are around us. And that's the true blessing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 4, the God of all comfort comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So when you go through hard times and you come out on the other side, you can then help those that are around you. And that's so important because sometimes we get stuck in our own misery and we get stuck in our own depressed state and the woe is me attitude that all it is is focused on us. But when we give God the glory and we say, God, it is at your power, it's at those moments that he can then not only comfort us, 
but we can then be that person to someone else around us. Number three, hard times can teach us. We don't like these lessons though, right? No, no, no. Many of the students, they're not ready to go back to school. Kai's like, oh, I gotta go back to school this week. I'm not looking forward to it. But hard times can teach us. God may use bad things that we're experiencing to teach us something that he can't get through to us in any other way. And that's very important. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 11 says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, when God wants to teach us something, he often sends suffering. And you're like, why am I in this right now? Why is this pain coming? Because I tried some easier ways and those didn't work. I mean, if, how many of you have ever used one of those um, dog shock collars? Not on other humans, okay? That, that's mean. I see people doing that and I'm like, what's wrong with you? But, you know, with the dog, you, you put it on the dog and you start it on a low frequency. And when it doesn't work, you just turn it up a little bit. And that doesn't work, you turn it up a little bit more. And eventually they finally get it, right? They're like, oh, that hurts. I shouldn't do that. Well, the same thing is true to us. God uses small nudges. And he starts by just poking us. And he starts with a whisper. But then eventually he's like, all right, Timothy's not getting this. Listen, you know, and immediately now he's paying attention. We're now paying attention because God has just given us a wake-up call that we truly need. And we're like, why are we suffering? Because this is what he's had to do to bring us along. Number four, hard times can reach us. Hard times can reach us. It was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse our deaf world. God can use hard times to get our attention to help eternal realities break through. In Luke chapter 13, after bringing up those who were wiped out while they were worshiping and those that were killed in a construction accident, Jesus answered the question that we're asking here today. Why do bad things happen? He, he sums it up, surprisingly, in a way that we go, ooh. So I want you to buckle in, and I want you to listen to this response that Jesus gives. And he actually uses the same exact words twice. In verses 3 and verse 5, this is what Jesus said. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We're focused on the physicalness of why we're suffering and the pain that we're feeling. Jesus is focused on the eternal. He's focused on our spirit. He's focused on our soul. He says, hey, I'm bringing you physical pain to try to get you to understand something spiritual. I want you to see the bigger picture, which is heaven. I want you to repent. Listen, he wants each and every one of you in heaven, but he will not force you. He will allow you to choose which way you're going to go. It's here that we see the true heart of Jesus. 
he longs for us to repent from the way that we've been living. We think we somehow deserve things. We think somehow that once we start going to church and, and we start getting involved and we're in a life group that we all of a sudden, God owes us something. Hey God, I, I checked it off. I, I went to life group this week. Hey God, I put my mask on and I went to church this week. Hey, hey God, I, I, I gave my tithe. Hey God, I, I gave some school supplies this past week. And, and we just think that all of these are just check marks that we just check off. Okay God, now you owe me. Time for you to, to give back to me. And when we have this attitude of God owes me something, when things do go wrong, and they will, we wig out, don't we? We get all flustered and we get all upset and God, I did this, 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 and this and why are you bringing this pain to me? Why are you putting me through this? Don't you know that I'm your servant? Look at my neighbor and look at the way he's living, yet you continue to give him raises at work. All of his children are doing the good thing, yet my children are the ones that are acting out. Hey, God, what about me? And we just, we kind of just flip out. And instead of wondering why bad things happen, Jesus reminds us that we're fallen individuals, that we're living in a fallen world. We should really just be amazed that he's given us another day to live. That he hasn't just wiped us out. While there's still time, Jesus calls us to repent. So now, as I said, all of that is just the introduction to the sermon. So you guys ready? I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm only going to keep you another 30 minutes. Where's Job when it hurts? Let's go back to the book of Job. We love to read the beginning because in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, one of the great things that we realize is when we look at Job 1 and 2, we have to understand one important thing. Again, and I know I've discussed this before, but many people, even Christians, they want to take God and, and Satan and they want to put them on a level playing field. When we read Job 1 and 2, guess what? That's not the case. Because Job, or I'm sorry, Satan has to come and give a report. All of the other angels are going to heaven. All of the other angels are going before God and they're saying, hey, this is what we've been doing. And guess who's standing in line with all of the other angels? Satan. And he has to give a report of what he's been up to. And God says, and we, we don't like this, God says, well, hey, have you checked out my servant Job? And it's like, you know, God's just serving Job up on a platter here. That's not the case. What we have to remember is that God sees all, right? All-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-loving. He knew, God knew that Satan was checking out Job. And he says, hey, since I know you've been looking at him, why don't you test my servant Job? And he does it twice. But one of the things that we have to understand, again, is that Satan has parameters that are set on him, and we must remember that. But now what I want us to do is we're actually going to go to the end of the book of Job. And we're going to dig in, and, and I wish I had time to just read um, these last chapters. But I encourage you, 38 through 42, this week, I want you to go home, and I want you to read them a, a, as a whole. 
And we have a case study of human suffering. I mean, Job, he lost everything. He lost his, his livelihood. He lost his possessions, his family, his health. He lost his friends. Job's trust wavered. Job mourned. He protested. He even cursed the day that he died. He never cursed God, which is what Satan said. Satan says, hey, you take everything away from him and surely he will curse you. Touch his body. He will surely curse you. He cursed the day that he died. And the word, the Hebrew word for, for curse and blessed is like one letter off. So Job was, Job was on the verge. All right, if you, you've ever been just on the edge, you know, I've got one hair left or one nerve left and you're standing on it. Yeah, I mean, like that's where Job was at. He was on the verge of just completely giving in. Randy Alcorn said this. He writes, when I need an adjustment to help me put affliction in perspective, I often read the last five chapters of Job. I, I never read these chapters without, I never read these chapters without feeling that God has put in his proper place and I've been put in mine. Listen, Job had a much stronger basis for, claim, for complaint than I'll ever have. I've, I've went through some hard times. You've went through some hard times. But how many of you have lost all of your possessions, all of your children, your livelihood? Your, your body has just been eaten up with sores. And Satan pushed it to the uttermost. His complaint was far greater than any of ours that we've went through. But if God's response to Job satisfied him, it should satisfy us. His candid questions are filled with angst and even anger. Job said in 6.11, what is my strength that I should wait? In 7.20, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? And then in Job chapters 38 and 39, Job comes face to face with the nature of God. And in chapters 40 through 42, he encounters the nature of God. So let's look at the, the, the God of nature. Job uh, 38 verse 1, we read, <clears throat> Then the Lord answered Job, <clears throat> excuse me, out of the whirlwind and said, so you would think at this point, God would appear like a gentle shepherd, right? Oh, Job, let, let me explain to you why I did what I did and why everything happened. We, we would think that he would be comforting Job by telling him everything was going to get better, or he would begin to answer his specific questions. God does neither. It's time for God to ask some questions now. So he comes out of the whirlwind and he says in verses two through three, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. So, so Job's jabs at Jehovah were just making things worse when he spoke about things that he had no clue about. He had no knowledge. There's a lot of that in our culture today, isn't there? 
Yeah, a lot of people kind of speaking with, because everybody is an expert on Facebook. Yeah, everybody's an expert on Twitter. You know, everybody knows everything, and they are really good behind a keyboard. Well, there's a lot of that. Well, Job kind of felt the same way in, in this case. And, and then so God challenges Job to a wrestling match. And, and, and he says, he says, dress for action like a man. So they were about to wrestle. And, and, and basically what they did was they would put a belt on. And if you've ever watched like sumer wrestlers, they, they grab a hold of the belt. And the whole purpose in this case was to rip the belt off of your opponent first. So God was about to wrestle with Job, or Job was about to try to wrestle with God in this case. And and so God takes Job through a crash course in Theology 101. I wish we had real time, as I said, to really break this down, but look with me at verses four through five. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding... Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? God is eternal while Job just recently showed up on the scene, right? In verse 31, the Almighty has Job gaze at the heavens. He says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? No, he can't. Can you, in verse 34 and 35, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings? In chapter 39, God turns to the animal kingdom. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Just a side note, God delights in the animals that he has made. He wonders if Job can direct the flight path of the hawks and the eagles like what he does. As I read through this discourse of chapters 38 through 39, there's approximately 60 different questions that that God asked. After each question, if you listen carefully, you can hear Job answer. Next. I don't know the answer to that one. Next. You know, all of a sudden, Job has went quiet. There's no response. And we get this first response from Job. So Job uh, and, and God, they don't just shake hands after chapter 39. They don't just go their separate ways. God wants Job to know he is sovereign and wise. Look at chapter 40, verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. God pauses just for a second here to allow Job to respond. It reminds me of the words of of Paul in in, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? How many of you wrestled in high school, college, middle school? Anybody wrestle? All right, one, one, couple of you. How many of you had, how many, what was your fastest pin? Anybody remember your fastest pin? I know that was a long time ago for some of you. What was your fastest pin? I remember being pinned in like three seconds. I, <laughs> I wrestled and, and I, I was going up against one of the state champions and I was like, I, I knew what was happening. I went into it. I'm, I'm going to beat him. I'm going to beat him. <laughs> nope. Um, that's about what happened to Job. Because the wrestling match started, and in a nanosecond, 
Job was lying flat on his back. He had nothing to say. We read this in verses four through five. Behold, I am of small account. What, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Have you ever said something and then immediately, like you make a statement? I, I remember doing this to my grandpa. I would make a statement and go, like immediately, the moment that I said it, I knew that I was in trouble. Like, why did you say that? Like, you, never mind. You, what'd you say? Nothing. You heard it, you know, and, and he heard it, but he wanted to know. So I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Um, I'm done, God. No more. Job was silenced in the presence of God's power because he's learning that God's person and his plans are greater than he could ever grasp. Let's dig into the nature of God. Not surprisingly, round one goes to God. The bell for two, uh, round two, goes off, and before he can catch his breath, Chapter 40, verses 7 through 8. Dress for action like a man. Okay, same words that were already used. All right, it's time to wrestle again. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. It would basically like Job was put on the witness stand and the best prosecutor was just asking questions and Job had nothing at all to say, then God gets to the heart of Job's problem. This had to hurt. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? While Job's initial reaction to loss in the beginning was of submissive worship, the longer that the discourse went on in his misery, he, he started to just increase his confidence. He didn't start to waver at all anymore because all of a sudden he was kind of being built up. No, and, and, and these three friends were, were questioning Job and, and his wife said, hey, Job, you've done something wrong. Curse God and die. His three friends said, hey, you've messed up. You, you've made a mistake. Some, you sinned. It's on you, Job. You have messed up. And Job's starting to sit up going, wait a minute. No, I haven't. I, I made sacrifices for my own sons just in case they sinned. I, I haven't done anything. So, so all of a sudden, Job's kind of puffing himself up, believing in his own righteousness up until this point. Friends, we have to be very, very careful about condemning God to make ourselves look better. Job thought he deserved an answer, that it was somehow his right. We go later into chapter 40, we read about the behemoth, which possibly was a dinosaur, Job, or God asked Job this question, 40 verse 24, can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? 
turning to the Leviathan, which could also be a dinosaur. This is where we understand Nessie to come from. God asks in chapter 41, verse 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? If no one can control what God has created, how can man can control the creator? And here's Job's second response. Job's response to the Almighty in this second discourse. Uh-uh, I'm, um, uh, I'm kind of powerless compared to you, God. Chapter 42, verses 2 through 3. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Don't miss this. Job doesn't get all his questions answered. He asked a lot of questions of God. He doesn't get them all answered. Please don't miss that. Even in the midst of your pain and your suffering, you may never fully understand the why that is behind it. That's what we talked about earlier. Job had only heard of God before this point, but now he sees him in all of his splendorness, in all, splendidness, in all of his goodness. And finally, Job breaks down and really the hinge of the entire books is, is found in verses 5 through 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Did you catch that? Job repented. He really hadn't done anything wrong that we know of in his life. But he had questioned God, and so here he repents. It means he changed his mind. It means he's going to go the other way. Ultimately, the only answer God gave Job was what? Himself. That was the only answer that God gave to Job. It was as if God said, Job, I'm your answer. Job, learn who I am. When you know me, you'll know how to handle anything. You see, Job wasn't told to follow a plan. He wasn't told to follow a person. Job was told to follow God himself. He is the one that is in ultimate control. That's exactly what we are being called to do here today. Admit that we have sinned. Admit that we have made a mistake. God is looking at each one of you today and he says, hey, put your faith and your trust and your hope in me. Because no matter what pain this life brings, I promise you, I have something so far greater in store for you. That's what we have to hold on to. So we talked about where is God when it hurts? Where, where's Job when it hurts? Let's really, really personalize this. Where are you when it hurts? Where do you find yourself when you are in 
pain? Where is Travis when it hurts? Sometimes I shut down. I go into my own little hole in my own little cave and I don't want to talk to anybody else and I get frustrated and I, I shut down. But what I need to be doing is going before God saying, God, you're in control and you've got this and I don't understand your plan but I'm going to give it up to you. That's what we have to hold on to. God basically challenged Job and the only thing that he could control it was his response. His response was his responsibility, and your response is your responsibility. Blaming God won't get you anywhere. It didn't help Job, and it won't help you. So what life lessons can we learn to Job? We're going to bring all of this together right now. Number one, we need a new view of God and a new view of ourselves. We need to understand that God is in control. Even when he appears not to be, he is in control, working for your good every step of the way. Number two, God, God's will for each of us does include suffering. Job 23 verse 10 says, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of, of your trials, in the midst of the pressure that is happening inside of your life, he is squeezing you, he is purifying you, he is putting you in the refiner's fire, and he is taking out all of those impurities out of your life. Number three, God's silence is not, listen, God's silence is not the same as his absence. When God feels far away, it's usually more to do with us than it is with him. Someone has said it this way, don't doubt in the dark what God has promised you in the light. Don't doubt in the dark what God has promised you in the light. And then lastly, our response needs to be one of repentance. God has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. Acts chapter 17 verse 30 says one of God's goals is to get everyone to repent. We read, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The God of the whirlwind took on human flesh, and he died on the cross for each and every one of you. He died for me. The mystery of suffering and sin should always take us to the Savior. If you have not yet put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have not asked him to forgive your sins, you can do so right here today. You can repent. You can receive the Redeemer. Job was able to say this in Job chapter 19, verse 25. We read, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that at at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Can you say that with certainty today? I hope you can. And if you can't, I want you to come talk to me. I want you to talk to one of the elders or one of the other staff. I'd love to just be able to share what that looks like for you to be one of his children. 
the best answer to the problem of evil is Jesus Christ. He can be your Lord and Savior. God isn't detached. He isn't distant. He's not disinterested. God loves you. And it's why he sent his son. He died as our substitute. He was raised to life as the victor. He ascended to heaven as the conqueror and is coming again in all of his tri triumphant glory. Corey Ten Boone often said, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. He's not always going to shield us from the storms of life, but he does provide shelter for us. One last quote from Randy Alcorn. He writes this. He said, when you're tempted to ask God, why did you do this to me? Look at the cross and ask, why did you do that for me? Make sure you have received God's gift for eternal glory that will deliver you from all evil and suffering after you die. So we're going to take a moment and, and we're going to take communion. If you have not received your, your communion items, um, it's in the back on both of the, the back uh, tables. Um, you can go back there. You can ask uh, one of your family members to go get it if you don't have it yet. Um, and I want you to remember what Jesus did for you. He went to the cross for your sins. And now you can ask him in this moment, as you remember what he did for you, you can ask him to forgive the sins of, uh, of this past week. You can repent where you sit right now. And if you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you can make that decision. And I want you to come talk to Dan. I want you to talk to myself, to JR. We'd love to, to talk with you to walk you through what it means to give your life over to him. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you that we are able to worship you even in the midst of pain and suffering. Lord, that through the darkest parts of our life that we know that you sent your son to suffer for our sins. And so in these moments, we're going to partake of communion. We're going to take of the bread and the juice that represents your son's body and blood that was spilled out, that was, that was sacrificed for our sins. And so, Father, I ask that you help us to remember daily to go before your throne, to repent when we ask those tough questions of why is this happening to me, let's flip that around and start to begin to say, why not me? And God, what do you want to bring out of it? We pray all of this in your son's most holy and precious name. Amen.